Hi, my name is Aisha McGowan, and this is Quick Brown Foxes, a podcast that seeks to answer the question of how to get more women of color into cycling by asking women of color how they got into cycling. This episode, I'll be speaking with Lydia Moore, a commuter cyclist, a bike mechanic, and a community organizer. My name is Lydia. I live in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I grew up in North Carolina and Indianapolis. I spent most of my 20s in Chicago, which is where I really fell in love with bicycles. Um, Any pronoun is fine. I'm not uh, picky. They, them, she, her, he, him, fine as hell, whatever you want to call me. Um, And uh, yeah, I I pretty much spend my days... um, making art, painting stuff, drawing things, listening to music, playing music. I go to school, some well, whatever going to school looks like nowadays. I work for a bike company and I am a mechanic doing all sorts of side jobs and gigs for folks. So it's a lot of just whatever can, can keep us afloat, keep me afloat this time. Got that hustle going. <laughs> Gotta. <laughs> That sounds about right. Okay, so Lydia, how did you get into bikes? So, I mean, I guess like the the early, early part of the story is, uh, you know, learning how to ride a bike. Um, Mm -hmm. I learned from a babysitter when I was like maybe seven or eight. Uh, She pretty much taught me by telling me to walk across the street to the driveway that had a hill that was like so steep. And at the time I was like, wow, this hill is so steep. How am I going to even walk up it, let alone ride a bike bike down it? Um, and so then every day I would go and just go a little bit higher, a little bit higher. And then one day I went all the way to the top, came all the way down, and I suddenly knew how to ride a bike without training wheels. And it was amazing. Um, That's so cool. Yeah. (laughs) And that also sounds really terrifying. Oh my gosh, yeah. (laughs) But it also, you know, you're you're a little kid, you're a little more fearless, I think, too. So even though you're like, oh my gosh, look at the bottom. You're like, well, I got to get back down there. Somehow. (laughs) So, um, and then, then, you know, the normal childhood life of like riding bikes for fun in the neighborhood, um, not really thinking too much of it. And then uh, I got cool and bicycles weren't cool really at that time for me. I, I don't think anyone encouraged me as like a young woman to pursue other ways of cycling besides just cycling to get around. Um, so, so I had a bicycle that just kind of lived outside for a long time. And then uh, when I was 20, I moved to Chicago. And my grandmother had just won a bike in a grocery store contest. Random. Super random. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, she was like, here, I'll send you this bike to Chicago so you have something to get around on. And after that, it was like the end of story. Like, I just loved cycling. I was like, wow, I don't need to get on a train. I don't need to be on anyone's schedule. I can go where I want. I can leave when I want. Nobody can tell me anything. Like, I'm good. Freedom. Uh, the freedom. What I didn't ask, but what was the bike that you learned on? Do you remember what kind of bike it was or what it looked like? Um, you know, I knew you were going to ask me that, and I've been trying to think about this for a while, and I don't remember. I I want to say it was probably something pink, something huffy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like pretty pretty <laughs> standard. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
uh, I didn't really start paying attention to what bikes were until, you know, that faithful first bike I got from a grocery store, which was like definitely some unknown name brand, unknown brand uh, bicycle that this grocery store just gave away, you know? Um, how, wait, what kind of competition? Like, how did she enter the competition? I'm, I'm, I think it was one of those, like you, you know, you, they have like the, Oh, here's a bicycle you could win, fill out this raffle and we'll draw right. your name okay. type of thing. So, um, that's so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's a bike. Go oh, good, good, good luck. Congratulations. Right. Um, <laughs> And of course, cool. like most bikes from grocery stores, it was in, not assembled properly. So of course. I took it to a shop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I took it to a shop, had them. They tried. Um, <laughs> it, the wheels definitely rolled. <laughs> okay. Starts and drives. That's <laughs> the requirements. Yeah. Cool. So, so, yeah. You're in Chicago and now you have all this freedom. What do you, what do you do with it? Yeah, I'm just riding everywhere. Um, you know, of course that bike got stolen. I went through a bunch of other crappy bikes from online, but I just like was like, I can never be without a bike at this point. Um, so then I was doing, you know, doing little like a uh, hundred mile uh, organized rides to along the lakefront or we did a few MS rides in Southern Illinois and like very flat Midwestern type type of riding. And then one day my friend was like, let's, let's go to California. Let's just ride from San Francisco to LA. That sounds really fun. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, let's do yeah. it. Why sure. <laughs> Definitely. Love it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at that point I was riding a, a specialized Langster uh, fixed gear. Okay. I was like, you know, fixie kid, thought I was some, some hot shit on the street, skidding around. Familiar journey. Familiar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Definitely was like figuring that out on my own. And uh, I had to borrow a bike to go through to California because I was like, I need a bike with gears. Borrowed um, a Trek FX uh, that was definitely too small, but it had a rack <laughs> and it had gears. So I did it. Um, it was very hard. Uh, California was uh, amazing and beautiful and fun. It was me and uh, my friend Kendra, Karen, Galen, the four of us just supporting ourselves, riding down the coast of California. It's such a beautiful route. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Highway one. Recommended. Yeah, Highway it's one. It's so pretty. It's so freaking pretty. Like that section of like, Big Sur. Mm -hmm. It's just like, where are, like, is this still America? Where are we? It's so, it's so beautiful. Every, yeah, every, every time we hit a descent and we were like, you're like looking at this thousand foot drop to the ocean on your right. Uh -huh. And I, I think all of us in our own ways at some point were like screaming at the top of our lungs, like, this is incredible. <laughs> this is our lives. Like, what are we even, how did we even end up here? <laughs> and then, you know, 10 miles later, you look behind you and you see these like amazing cliffs and the where you came from. And you're like, how, That's like, so we were just over there. Like, what is this? Um. Yeah, it was it was a hard ride, and I I actually ended up having to stop in San Luis Obispo County because I had an accident, so I got uh -oh. on the train. Yeah, it's okay though. I survived. Um, my uh, my friends finished, and we all met each other in L.A. You know, yucked it up, partied it up anyway, um, and That's had a good. Yeah, just had a good time. Um, and all the while, I was still just like, didn't think about the bike industry as like an industry, as like a job, mm -hmm. like a place, like 
going to bike shops, not thinking about these dudes who've probably been in these shops for 15 or 20 years, not realizing that that's a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Not realizing that it's a thing for me, rather, I should say, like just always seeing it as a very like, oh, this white boy like got introduced to bikes and at 13 got his first bike shop job and he's been doing it ever since for 40 years, for 50 years. And um, I was working at Starbucks and like commuting to work everywhere, every day and transferring product between Starbucks in Chicago. And like when I finally... um, left Starbucks and I like didn't know what to do with my life I was like oh bicycles bicycles make (laughs) make sense for a career right that that seems like something I could do you could could do bikes yeah Yeah. sure (laughs) Uh, I had heard about a friend's brother who had gone to UBI uh, United Bicycle Institute in Portland and Mm -hmm. I was like oh yeah Portland's a bike city cool so in 2014 I basically like moved from Chicago. I didn't really have a home. Um, I'd like spent some time in New York, but I was like, let me go to Portland for a little while and see what it's like. And I basically put a bunch of my savings into the, the two week, um, program there. Uh, uh, what is it? The shop operations and, uh, technician program, I think is what it's called. After listening back to this episode, Lydia asked me to clarify that it was the professional repair and shop operations class. Cool. It's a it's a certified like a like a certification. Um, you take a test. You know, you spend two weeks. You learn how to build wheels. You take them apart. Um, yeah. So it's not it's not the same as the the mechanic school. It's like like literally operations for like being working in a shop yeah so you also learn like like these are some best business practices these are some um great great things to think about you know the the people in my class were like just from all over the place we had people from alaska we had this guy hmm. from the bay area um there was a couple of us from the east coast so a lot of people from the midwest people who'd been working in bike shops for a long time. And then there was like me and a couple other guys who were like, we've never worked in a bike shop before. (laughs) Uh, Never had any like real technical experience like this before. Um, The guy from the Bay was like, I'm operating a shop out of a trailer that I carry around on my bike. And I was like, wow, that's, that's okay. I didn't know that could be a thing. (laughs) Cool. Yeah. Mobile bike, mobile bike shops are like, like really, really smart. Um, yeah. And useful if you are stranded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sure. Um, yeah. So it was it was a little it was a crash course in everything. It was definitely like way over my head at one point. Like I was just like, I have there's so much information. I have no idea what I'm even learning from you guys. But I passed the test. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. <laughs> um, I got the certification and uh you know, shopped around in Portland for a bit for a job and for life and realized that Portland was, um, you know, to be frank, a little too white for me. Um, There weren't enough black people riding bikes. Um, There weren't enough black people just to engage with even um, when I would try to go places. And then the things I learned about the history in Portland um, and the history of the Pacific Northwest just is like so interesting around like how they've you know, 
didn't have slavery because they didn't want to have black people competing for jobs. So it's a sundown state. It's real exciting <laughs> stuff. I don't know if we've ever talked about Portland on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my best friend lives there and it blows my mind every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting too, thinking a lot about like the, the similarities of Portland and New York's gentrification um, specifically thinking about like downtown Brooklyn's gentrification to Portland's, um, I forget what the like really hip, trendy neighborhood is in Portland that everybody hangs out in. Uh, <laughs> but there's like there's like an area I, I remember trying to go to it and trying to like make friends in Portland and not succeeding. But <laughs> oh, that sounds so sad. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> so the positive end is that is that I just came back to New York and um, everything fell into place in New York. I got a job at Bicycle Habitat right away. Um, you know, of course, I didn't get a service job because I had no idea what I was doing and. <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which location were you at? Um, the Park Slope location. Um, okay. Yeah. Shout out to those guys. Um, shout outs, you know, in in uh, in respect. Um, I definitely learned a lot there. Um, learned a lot about the intersections of race and bicycles through that shop. Um, mm-hmm. Learned a lot about how to sell bikes, how to talk to people about bikes. Um and just like really got a crash course in the industry because Bicycle Habitat, um, for anyone who doesn't know, like has a, a huge following here in the city, has been in New York for like 40, 40 plus years, family operated, and they have sold every bike under the sun um, and mm-hmm. still carry like three or four different brands of bikes, uh, including the big ones, Specialized in Trek, um, but lots of smaller brands too. And um, yeah, it's like a very interesting space. Um, but I started out as a salesperson, just, you know, slanging bikes left and right, uh, trying to get people on bikes, getting excited about it. Um, and the whole while begging to get into the service department, begging to learn how to build bikes. Um, uh, I think I spent two years in the Park Slope location um, with that fight and then uh, made my way to the new location that they have on Vanderbilt. So still very close to Prospect Park. Um, And that's where I finally like uh, met my homie, Ed Garabito. Hey, Ed, if you listen to this, Um, he's the first mechanic who really was like open and unwilling to let me learn in his service department. Um, He's- That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, You know, as you can imagine being a black woman in a bike shop, begging dudes to teach you, to show you, um, is very humbling. Um, you realize how much gatekeeping really happens in the bike industry as well. Um, what was the reaction? Was it like a, just a hard no or like, like, like a little bit of like doubting the fact that you either wanted to or could, like, what was the, what was that gatekeeping like? Yeah. So it was a mix of things, you know, it's, at first it's, it's the understandably so like you don't quite yet have the skills to be able to just do flat fixes. Right. Cause my thought was like, Oh, I can just fix flats. That's easy. And, and you don't realize that like, actually every time a, a technician goes to fix a flat, if they have to take your wheel off, they're probably adjusting your brakes. They're probably adjusting a bunch of other stuff as well to make sure that your bike is moving safely. Um, and so not having that sort of, uh, um, attention to detail yet as a mechanic. I can understand now why 
you know, me asking like, can I just fix flats was like a, a hard no. Um, and then kind of, a, a I got a little mocked, you know, I, I will say my interview, I was handed a bike to build. Um, if I, you know, interviewed someone nowadays and they'd built a bike the way that I had built that bike, I definitely wouldn't have hired them as a technician either. But um, uh, there was hard nose. And then one winter there was a yes that came from the head tech in that shop. But the uh, store manager was put, be, be, giving me a hard no. Um, I won't, uh, I don't want to mince words about it. I think there was a lot of, like I said, race in, in play with this. Um, it's funny to be in a shop with women leading it. I had two uh, women managers who were awesome at first. And then as time went by, I started realizing there was a lot of like, microaggressions and politics playing into me just simply saying like, I want to learn how to build a bike. Like I want to have this skill, not only for myself, but because I think it'll make me a better salesperson. And yeah. yeah and, and just, you know, the, the technician, the head tech was like, yeah, go ahead, go grab a bike out of the basement. It's slow. It's the middle of, I think it was like the middle of January. So there's nothing going on in the shop anyway. We're all just getting on each other's nerves. Um, and, you know, the manager was like, like, wouldn't even say it to my face, actually said it to the tech that I was not allowed to do this um, and didn't give me any sort of reason. Right. Um, allowed. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. That feels yeah. weird to me, but I wasn't I wasn't there. So, you know. Um. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it felt weird for me, too. Um, OK. I, I, I had a lot of. I had a lot of tension with this woman, um, you know, for her, a lot of it had to do with my tone not being what she liked mm-hmm. or, um, you know, I, I can't, I can't think of all the specific things that she would bring up, but the tone was really a big one for her. And it was really hard for me. Um, you know, I, I have a pretty dry tone, I think in general, <laughs> uh, I've, I've, definitely been told in the past I have a tone, um, but we all know the politics of like a black woman's voice in any mm-hmm. workspace. Familiar. Uh, is, it's something we all have. I think it's so frustrating to... just like hearing you try and like explain this and navigate this while being obviously being recorded. Um, but just like all of the time that we spend like replaying situations and scenarios in our heads and trying to make sense of them, even though we know what it is. It's like, no, that can't, it's not that, like, that's too basic. Like there's like a reason, right? Like a real reason that she would not allow you to just learn something in a, like, I don't know, like, I guess I've never worked at a bike shop, but I spent a lot of time in bike shops and I have also spent a lot of time like, you know, shooting the shit with people at the shop and like learning things from them. And like, there's just so much like exchange, of in- like so much exchanging of information that happens regularly. So the idea that she would just not allow, like that, that word is really bothering me yeah. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think she has the right to not allow you to learn something. Um, yeah. It also, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. It also, for me, was really, um, you know, I, I, I 
feel like I come from a, a world of doing a lot of leadership work. I worked for Starbucks for a long time. I managed um, some stores in the last several years I worked for them. And there's a lot of uh, teaching and training around like the fact that being a leader is also being a teacher, is also like supporting folks in the goals that they have for themselves and seeing how those goals can support you and your team. Um, and then accepting the moments when you have to like recognize that someone has now moved on and needs to, to grow beyond your team. Um, and this, uh, in the, in these moments with this particular leader, it felt very much so like, um, her desire for growth was, uh, dependent on her control of that growth, um, who, who gets to grow and who gets to learn and become something beyond the sales floor, um, was, was in her control, uh, in that space. So that was that was always really hard for me. And, and of course, you know, I'm not going to pretend like I didn't watch other white dudes come into the shop after me who got to just like walk right into the service department and do whatever they want, or, you know, seeing the ways that like, some they were of the like, you know, super experienced and had, you know, they knew all the things already. Right. Yeah. See my face, but it's, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, they probably could hold, could hold the tools more surely than I could, but um. oh, okay, that's it. It's, they have a better grip um, on the on the tools. Probably, the, you know, those their, tools, their turning technique. <laughs> those tools were designed with whiteness in mind, probably. So mm -hmm. I would imagine that could be it. But you know, um, me and this this woman, this white woman, um, finally had it out one day, and I just, you know, I was like. I don't understand why you're getting in the way of my personal growth, of my development, of something that would support all of us. Like, like I actually don't understand what the issue is. And in that blow up, her end response was, I think maybe you need a new manager. And it was so like, yeah, <laughs> like, duh. <laughs> Like, I agree. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't even know what to, I don't think I even said anything. I think we both just like walked away from that moment because I was just like, <laughs> yeah, I need someone. And and honestly, it's not just me. It's the store as a whole. Like, like you know, like you're impacting all of us at this point. If Even if it's only me, I'm now going and talking to my other coworkers about this, right? I'm, I'm bringing this energy into our entire space. Um, so yeah, so that was really that was really hard. There was, you know, there's so many other moments in that shop too where I didn't feel supported and I don't know why I let myself stay there for 2 years. I think it was the the fear that like I couldn't find another bike shop job this good that paid that well. Um, you know, I was doing really really great for that shop and uh they were sliding me bonuses in secrecy under the table. Um, so that I wouldn't tell anybody else that I was getting bonuses. So I'm just letting everybody know now, Bicycle Habitat gives you secret bonuses if they like you, if they want to keep you because you're making numbers. Um, so just keep that in mind. If you work for them, ask them for a bonus. Just be like, yo, I looked at my numbers and I'm crushing it. How can I get a bonus? Because they do it, <laughs> even if they pretend like they don't. Um, and Knowledge that, is power. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and that's the other, like, you know, sad thing is I, I do feel like um, the McCorkles who run Bicycle Habitat have well intentions. They do hire the most diverse bike shop people I've seen in any shop in this city. 
Um, they do have like the most diverse styles of cyclists working for them too. It's not just a bunch of roadies. It's not just a bunch of empty beers. It's, it's people doing tours. It's people commuting. It's, you know, delivery workers. Um, it's everybody, men, women, trans, queer, non-binary, however people def- identify if they love bikes and have a passion for them, you could probably get hired at Bicycle Habitat. And that's really beautiful. Um, but yeah, I, I just eventually was like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I got to start looking for a new job because, you know, this, this woman, you know, I'm realizing just whatever her vendetta is against me, against black women is very personal. Um, and so I was like thinking about it, figuring it out. And then my homie, Jeff, um, shout out to Jeff. Uh, he doesn't work for bikes anymore, but he's still a dope person. And still amazing. He just came to me out of the blue and was like, do you want to come work at the Vanderbilt store for me? Like, I really need a team. I need some people and you're great. I was like, yeah. So I go over there. Yeah. And it's cool. You know, I'm the only woman working with a bunch of dudes. It's definitely a bit of a, a a culture shock, Mm -hmm. but, (laughs) but I, I, you know, get into it. We're, we're figuring things out. I feel way more supported by my leadership. They're like, there's only, um, at the time, I think there were only like five or six of us working in that whole location. So we just became super, super tight. It was new. So we could really do whatever we wanted. We were constantly changing the floor makeup. Uh, we had a nice backyard that we put a bunch of, of like work into to make it like a, a gathering space for ourselves after work. We, you know, we just had a good time. And then I started noticing that our service department was having a hard time keeping mechanics. We, we, we were going through mechanics that just like weren't living up to it. And, uh, you know, I had been lucky enough in that space to be able to do a lot of my own bike work and start learning some stuff on my own that I finally just was like, let me go to the source. Let me go to Charlie, the owner. Let me write him a letter about where I want to be, what I want to do, because maybe that's the, that's was the mistake is that I was going to the store manager. And at this point, the store managers in Vanderbilt know what I want and they support it. So I just need to get Charlie on board. And once I wrote him my like passionate letter about wanting to be a tech and wanting to support the store in that way, um, Charlie was like, okay, cool, let's do it. I found an application to go take a bike building class at Trex, uh, Trek Certified Service Center. They had like a women's class. Um, I, you know, got in, uh, got sent out to Waterloo. It was my first time going to Trek. Um, so that was, it felt really cool. Um, you know, I kind of knew what to expect. I've been to Wisconsin. Uh, I've been to the Midwest. I know that some of the smaller towns in the Midwest aren't necessarily the most diverse places. Um, but I wasn't quite so prepared for this organization who was planning a women's event, a women's week of Uh-oh. learning. Um <laughs> You know, and and I think the other women who joined me there too were a little like, wow, this is so cool. But also like, you know, one of the first things I noticed is that all the porters working for Trek were black or Latinx, right? Can you um, explain what a porter is? Uh, yeah, so uh, custodial work basically. So all mm-hmm. of the people cleaning the bathrooms, cleaning out the offices, um, those were the only black people I was seeing for the first couple of days. And how did that make you feel? Um, you know, I usually feel, I feel a lot of things about that um, because, you know, I 
come from family members and folks who have done that kind of work. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of work. I think it's it's necessary work and that's why it exists in our society. Um, but when you start to realize that the people with all of the clout and the power or the you know, celebratory positions within an organization are white and the people who like clearly don't have much say and are walking around more so in what feels like the shadows. Um, Cause you know, we always, I always think about how like the help and the cleaning folks aren't usually seen. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it definitely made me like question some of my own like connection within this industry of, of so many, so many white people, my own like proximity to whiteness, even in that, in that uh, arena. Um, and then, you know, on top of it in the class, I was the only black woman. Um, there were some other women of color. So that was uh, definitely welcomed. Um, but uh, the class was taught by men. Um, they did bring a woman in to be a teacher with us, but she is not a part of the Trek certified service team. So the curriculum was not developed with her or with women in mind. Um, it was a curriculum set up by a bunch of men. Um, and uh, I, I firmly believe that they, that the idea of having a women's class became an afterthought when they realized that women weren't coming into their other classes. How do you think that it being designed by men impacted that experience? Um, well, some of the conversation around like, how do we reach a bike, you know, just the, the, the size difference, right? There were women in that class who were five foot one, five foot two. And the men, you know, the questions that some people had were like, I actually can't physically reach around a bike this way. And I think it was a couple days before uh, the woman who was also helping ta teach the class came in and she just said to us, she was like, yo, if you need to get a step stool for your service center, get a step stool, put your name on it. That's your step stool so that you can stand up and be tall enough to get over that bike. And I was like, wow, that's a great tip. I never would have thought of that. So simple. <laughs> right? um, I wouldn't have thought of that. I was like, what's the solution? How do we fix this? <laughs> Make the bike smaller. No. <laughs> um, you know, and this, and I'll tell them that service center, that, that, that classroom was beautiful. They have all of the top of the line, everything, right? Like the best tools. Um, they're using uh, efficiency velo uh, stands, which um, for folks who aren't in the bike world, efficiency velo makes these like beautiful works of art stands. They look like something out of an auto industry shop, um, anodized in red and gold and it's got a uh, a counterbalanced weight so you don't have to fuss around with any sort of um you don't have like the legs and the feet like and you gotta like balance it <laughs> no 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 it's a it's a flat base stand uh that's weighted it can you can lift a, a e-bike without having to lift the e like you don't have to lift a bike into the stand the stand can come down to the bike um, it's like That's super amazing. Pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's like a, I'm, I'm looking at it. It's like a pulley system. Mm -hmm. huh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Around here, e-bike repairs get done on the floor. <laughs> uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, yeah. I've been known to, to, to call out to the guys, like who's the strongest guy in the room so they can come help me lift this bike up. <laughs> They're heavy. Yeah. They're fun, but they are heavy. Yeah. 
So, you know, it was a cool, it was a cool experience. I will say I learned a lot. Um, I came out of that feeling really like grateful to have been in a class of women. Cause I think the questions we were able to ask, you know, even though at the end of the day, they didn't bring enough, uh, they give you like a trophy, like here's a shirt. Um, but they didn't bring enough small shirts for every woman. They didn't think about the fact that we would all need smaller, smaller shirts. shirts. <laughs> so, you know, those of us who like, I'm, I'm five, seven, I'm, I'm not huge, uh, but I just went ahead and opted to take the medium shirt so that some of the smaller women in the class could have the smalls and extra smalls. Um, yeah. And that, and that was even a thing, a conversation among all of us in the hotel, you know, later that night was like, how were they not able to get enough shirts for us all to fit? <laughs> They're doing a women-specific situation. Where yeah. the forethought for it's what a, women need? It seems like such a small consideration, but those are the things that people remember, right? Like, yeah. it makes you feel like you were important enough for them to think about something like that. And then if they didn't, then it it's not like the end of the world. I don't think anybody's like, oh, terrible class. They didn't have the right size shirt. But it's like, also, like, when they do, it you notice like yeah i don't know i i enjoy feeling like people considered the whole picture agreed <laughs> agreed and like yeah just the the forethought that goes into anything like i think a lot about how much attention to detail a bike mechanic needs to have to be a really good bike mechanic and you think that that same attention to detail translates in other parts of the bike shop world um, and the bike company, bike manufacturer world, um, but it still gets dropped for things like women, things like black people, you know, like in those lectures. Uh, um, since then, I've been back to Trek TCS Certified Service Center uh, twice for different trainings. Um, and the lectures uh, tend to still be very, um, very much so crafted around um, the experience of whiteness, whether the people crafting them realize this or not. Just the fact that every video or film that's shown to us is a white man telling us mm -hmm. something. Um, and, uh, you know, when I gave that critique, the next time I went for a class, there was a white passing woman in one of the videos. So there- <laughs> Diversity. <laughs> exactly. They did it. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like all of us in like, most of the POC folks and black folks I know who, you know, I'll say quote unquote, are woke. Um, we've all are already understood and realized that diversity in a white space really just means diversity for white women. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then when they get that first POC woman or that first black man or whatever, then maybe you'll start to see some move towards all of the marginalized identities that are using bicycles as well. Um, those feel but like I still pause. haven't seen that yet at Trek. Those feel like the pause and sigh moments for me where you're like, oh, it's it's not a white man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. This is all right. Okay. I should have been clearer. I understand now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, technically, this is what I asked for. So. 
yeah. So okay, you guys sort of listen to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I even had the I've had the experience in Waterloo in the Trek headquarters of uh, oh, there's this other black woman who lives in Brooklyn. Do you know her? Hmm. Her name is Courtney. And then I'd have to be like, well, I do know a Courtney in Brooklyn. What's her last name? I don't know her last name. Oh. Okay. Uh, okay. Well, I don't know if I know her then. <laughs> Courtney's a pretty popular name. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Brooklyn's a pretty populated city. So I'm going to assume there's more than one black woman named Courtney <laughs> riding a bike. Yes. Maybe. <laughs> It's yeah. And, and, you know, it was, it was, I know it was well-intended, but then Courtney and I were introduced at lunch one day and we both kind of had a very awkward moment. I don't think either of us really knew how to engage with the other because we didn't know how deep in this Trek environment either one of us were. So, um, and I don't remember Courtney's last name, unfortunately, but Courtney, if you're out there and you remember us meeting at Trek headquarters, like let's link up and chat. Uh, about our experiences, because I don't think you actually work for Trek anymore. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so, you know, just just all of these little little things coming up in this class. And then uh, we finally ended. It feels great. I've like got all this new information. I come back to my shop ready to like hit the hit the service stand running you know they're like all right Lydia this is your summer you're just gonna be like building bikes and fixing flats and that is all I did for an entire summer I think I built I don't even know yeah I can fix I can definitely fix a flat in under five minutes and I do feel pretty proud of that <laughs> That's um but uh yeah my thumbs were bloody, my hands hurt, I had cramps in my hands. You know, at one point I was just like, if I have to look at another FX2, FX3, I'm gonna scream because those are the most popular bikes that Trek sale sells, um, building a lot of the same bikes. Um, but then I got some opportunities, uh, you know, I think I was showing uh, my drive and my desire. Um, and at this point, a new head tech had come into our shop. His name's Tim, shout out to Tim. Uh, Tim's a great guy, uh, also has some work to do on his engagement in the bike industry with, uh, I'll say, uh, I won't, I, I won't say white supremacy, but definitely some of the like misogyny or, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the most diplomatic word to say for it because misogyny doesn't even feel diplomatic enough, but you know, guys don't always know how to deal with women or queer people, um, but Tim and I really had a lot of difficult conversations around those things with each other. And we talked about our experiences with race. Um, he's Korean American. Uh, and, uh, you know, we both would have, have strange situations happen with customers in the shop where we'd be like, is this racist? This probably is. I don't know. <laughs> um, but let's just keep moving through it, you know? And, and the nice thing is that that ultimately Tim would 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 say, you know, you don't have to work on everyone's bike. You can refuse to give someone service. Um, that's totally your prerogative. Um, so I took that very very seriously, and um, you know, would would take those moments to be like, hey, dude, I don't have to be the mechanic working on your bike. If you don't want a woman, go somewhere else. <laughs> and it's you an know, option. yeah, a choice that they can make, yeah. Um, but yeah, but 
but uh, Tim would give me all kinds of stuff. Let me let me mess up things. I remember having a a drum break um, off of a Dutch bike fall apart in the floor on a stand uh, as I was just expecting to change a flat. And then um, my whole day became learning how to put a drum break together. <laughs> um, I bet they weren't expecting that. <laughs> no, but I will say that guy did tell me that his break never worked so good before that. <laughs> so. Good work. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and so in, in all of the like struggle of being a black woman trying to become a mechanic in a bike shop, there was a lot of joy. Um, I feel like every brown or black person, um, particularly women, femme, queer people that would come into the shop uh, were like, wow, I've never seen a black woman working on bikes before. Oh my gosh, I want to talk to you about bikes. Like, I don't want to talk to these white dudes. I don't want to talk to that guy. Can you I mean, help me out with this? There's a certain level of I'm... comfort in it, right? Where, you, like, it's like based on your previous experiences where you've tried to talk to like white dudes about stuff. And, like, at least for me, I feel like there's this like period of time where you have to earn their respect a lot of the time. So they'll actually even engage with you. And that's so exhausting. Like, I don't, I shouldn't have to earn your respect for you to answer my freaking questions. Like, just talk to me. I'm a person and I'm interested in what you have to say. Like that, in my opinion, should be enough. Like, I shouldn't have to like, like prove myself as a worthy <laughs> conversational partner. I don't know, like whatever. But yeah, like I'm sure, like I can imagine seeing that and being like super refreshed. Like I remember walking into a shop and seeing just, First of all, I called first and I was so stoked because the person on the phone was just so welcoming and inviting and it was like a really great experience. And so I went to the shop and they were stoked to see me as a black woman and I was stoked to see her. And she was like, man, I love your hat. And like I gave her the hat off of my head. Like there was like yeah. so much excitement and just like, like seeing each other in this mm -hmm. space and understanding how rare that can be, but also how appreciative we were of experiencing this moment and like enjoying this moment but you were saying I'm so sorry <laughs> no no that's, I mean that's that's it though that was like those would be the moments of the most joy like even when I was on the sales floor and I was bummed because nobody was letting me work on bikes that moment when like a black person came in and was like you ride bikes oh my gosh let's talk about it like yes affirming each other we're doing it cool get it you know like and even seeing like the ways that some of the the white folks I worked with would avoid a certain person because of what they assumed based on their appearance. And then that would be the person that I'd be talking to, super casual. And the next thing you know, I'm checking them out for a $2,000 sale. sale. Like, yeah. like Why would they be in a bike shop? If they want to buy something. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, and this is a very real thing in a bike shop, we get a lot of tire kickers. So you do get a lot of people who come into the bike shop pretending like they want to buy a bike, but they really just want to hang out in the bike shop, which is cool with me. I'm like, yeah, the bike shop's a cool place to be. Toys yeah, everywhere, like <laughs> things to look at. But that's the thing is like, to me, uh, a bike shop that is a good steward of the community welcomes everyone regardless of the business that they may bring to them. If you have a passion for bicycles, you're welcome in my bike shop. Like, that's all that matters to me. I don't care if you have $100, $1,000, $10,000 to spend. You might not have any dollars to spend, but you just want to come in and soak up some of that good bike bike shop energy. Come on, let's do it. Um, let's do it. So what are you up to now? 
so now so now I work for Trek. I manage uh I was managing, I will say up until COVID hit, I was managing the Trek bikes in Chelsea. What's up, my Chelsea people? Miss you guys. Love you. Did guys. they buy all the Dannys? Is that what happened? Yeah. So so this so this is actually really interesting. There were like all these rumors about Dannys, you know, through the bike bike world here in New York. Everybody's like, what's going on? What's going on? And I like kind of followed those rumors. Um, I had a pretty traumatic experience with a, a very aggressive customer in Bicycle Habitat and decided that it was time for me to take leave from that space. I uh, didn't any longer feel like uh, the leadership knew how to support me. Um, knew how to create a safe space for me and the queer people that I love. Um, uh, Habitat was really awesome, though. They did make a lot of space for me in Different Gear. I organize a ride series called Different Gear. Uh, we create, curate this community bicycle series for queer and trans people of color. Uh, it's been beautiful. We've been doing this now for about four years. Um, I'll That's go into a little more detail about it later, but... Um, but basically, yeah, I got this job at Trek and they were still operating out of the Danny's location um, off of uh, 6th Avenue. And then we- Wait, got the one on 6th and uh, 14th or 15th? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. My husband used to work at Metro for several years at that exact spot. And yeah. Then Danny's, Danny's bought them. I think, yeah. Did Danny's buy them first? And now they're a Trek store. Yeah. That's crazy. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. It, it. You know that. No, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's that's the story with a lot of people. You know, I feel like it's been like Danny's Metro Cycles and Bicycle Habitat, like really like being those hometown bike shops that have like multiple locations across the city. Um, and Trek bought Danny's out. You know, uh, Danny's. I, I think from what I understand, they were looking to get out of the city, and this opportunity came for them. Um, so I worked in that location for a month. That location was falling apart. It was pretty mm. bad. Uh, but we were all like getting excited, like, yeah, we're going to go to this new location on 8th Avenue. I don't know if you remember the American Apparel that used to be on 8th Avenue between 19th and the 20th. Mm -hmm. um, but Trek got into that space. We built out a really dope shop. I mean, that I was a really big space, wasn't it? Yeah. That was I, like a that was like an American Apparel outlet. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was a big store. And, and you know, for me, it was the biggest bike shop I've ever worked in at this point. You know, Bicycle Habitat, I think we had three mechanics working in an area of maybe like five by six feet. <laughs> um, so to get into a space where I didn't have to bump shoulders or run into anything while I was working on a bike was amazing. <laughs> um, a whole new world. You know, yeah, getting to be in a leadership role where I could kind of make decisions of my own on how we were going to run the space, um, being challenged every day still with bikes and, you know, interpersonal situations with coworkers. Um, it was a lot of work. It was a lot of, it was not only a lot of bike work, it was a lot of emotional labor, a lot of like, um, recognizing when someone was doing something that I'm like, well, that's sexual harassment. But I don't actually know if you know what sexual harassment is and what harassment looks like. And thanks, you know, society. <laughs> yeah, you know, and like not wanting to be that person who goes, you know, four people up and goes to HR and is like, "Hey, I think I'm being sexually harassed." I wanted to have a conversation with my coworkers, um, and I bring this specific story up to say that I was expecting coming into such a big corporate company like Trek. It's a billion dollar privately owned company with uh, manufacturing globally. 
with stores globally selling their bikes. I was expecting a lot more built around protecting and supporting workers of marginalized identities, women, uh, people of color, uh, people differently abled. Um, and there was none of that. There was no training around harassment. There was no education around diversity and inclusion, even though they touted a lot of diversity and inclusion in their speeches to us. Um, Can I ask without any sarcasm, like genuinely ask, why did you expect that? I think I expected it because I just thought corporate meant there's more checks and balances in place. You know, you just, I, I think coming from a place like Starbucks, that's very corporate, there was all sorts of training around it, right? There was lots of like, hey, we've got everything in place. Here's some education for you. And, you know, Starbucks is a company that, you know, isn't even 50 years old. <laughs> um, and we're looking at a company that's been around for nearly 50, what I think, Trek was a person no that in the 70s, you know? Yeah, I, I should know because I've been working for them, but I don't remember. Um, but uh, I think Trek has been around since the 70s, and they've been a company manufacturing um, and, and interacting on a global scale for a long time. So I just expected a little bit more than what I was getting out of my small bike shop, my small business bike shop life. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. That I can understand. Yeah. Thank you. Um, but of course I didn't get that. Uh, I went to my store manager. I said, hey, I think that what this person is doing is sexual harassment. I wanna know because you have a relationship. You know, I entered into a space with a bunch of men who'd been working with each other for many years. So I just, you know, came to him very frankly, I, how can I approach this person? Because I wanna talk to him about this. I've only been working here for a few weeks. Um, this is a difficult conversation to have. What should I do? And my manager's response was, uh, I think that's a cultural difference. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, Miss. Oh, wow. Oh. And you know, I. <laughs> and I will oh, tell but, you, but, this but, is coming so, from a from a white man in a bike shop telling but, me. But but does that? that <laughs> okay. All right. Let's go on that that line of of thought that it that it's a cultural difference. Yeah. Does that make it go away? <laughs> For him, it did. For him, it was the statement that he, I think it was the statement that he could make that was the closest to being supportive to me um, without mm. actually taking ownership and recognizing that maybe in some ways he's perpetuated a space that allows this sort of thing to exist because he is the manager and has Where been. Where did that culture come group. from, manager? <laughs> you <laughs> know, uh, propping up this culture <laughs> that you. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah that can, um, that can feel like sexual harassment like what mm -hmm. what is the culture that well and this gets into a whole steep of race racial issues you know like yeah. i think a lot about the bike industry's parallels to the food industry and how a lot of the people Ugh. working in the back ends are usually immigrant workers uh who do not speak english as a first language um you know I'll speak personally in my uh, shop. We have a group of Dominican guys that we work that I work with. Uh, I have, um, you know, a group of teenage boys that we were working with um, in that space, and just really learning and understanding the the very deep ways that men are totally allowed to be adult babies. 
um, and perpetuate that with each other. Um, you know, you, you just start to see it, especially when you have like 19, 18, 19, 20 year olds, and then you have mid twenties and 30 year olds. And somehow they all just like really, really identify with each other very closely in ways that I just like, was like, I can't, like, I'm sorry, you teenagers need to get out of my service area and go stand on the sales floor. Cause I cannot listen to you talk right now. I cannot listen <laughs> to the wild stories. You're talking about someone's death. I cannot listen to the things you've seen on Twitter go away, <laughs> you know, which is different than what they would receive. I think from our uh, white dude, 30 something manager from the 20 something dudes that we were working with, uh, yeah, that could be a whole conversation on another day, honestly. Mm -hmm. Man babies. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, I, you know, I'm just, I, I was just really trying to navigate this corporate world in the most uh, respectful way I could. Um, and then one day a customer comes in and calls me an equal opportunity. <laughs> I'm sorry. What, what are they, in, what is the context? So I, I, I'm, I'm the mechanic, I'm the head tech, you know, I've been okay. telling these guys, like you guys, you guys have to tell our customers who I am because they're always going to defer to you first. And if you don't say, this is Lydia, our service manager, she can help you out. People are not going to trust me. So that's like already an education piece I had to do with them. So on this particular day, I'm in the basement clearing up, doing some stuff. And someone comes down and is like, oh, Lydia, there's someone here that needs some work done. You know, I'm, I'm rushing upstairs. I get up there. I'm walking behind a couple of guys as I get into the service area. And I'm like, hey there, how's it going? And he's like, you're the mechanic? And this is like a middle-aged white guy. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yep, that's me. And he's like, oh, an equal opportunity, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So casual. And, you know, I was so floored at the audacity. I, uh, I didn't even, you know, this is, uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm still two months into a new job. I'm like, we're just putting ourselves together in this new space. I didn't even have the, uh, like brain power to be like, get out of my shop. Like, <laughs> so what, what, how do you react to that? Then I laughed under my breath. I looked okay. at, around at everyone around me. I felt very uncomfortable. You know, every, mm -hmm. everyone else is somehow not aware of anything happening. Cause it's, always Oh, they were not aware that that was ex exceptionally not okay. Oh, okay. No, you just, uh, froze on me. I'm still here. Oh, Hey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so no one else saw a problem with that. I, I you know, cultural differences. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, cultural differences. It's a cultural thing. Um, so you know, I just, I, you know, I was like, pick your battles, Lydia. Mm -hmm. Fix this flat as fast as you can. Send this guy out of here and don't deal with it. You know, like you can bring it up after he's gone. So fix the flat. You know, I'm doing the flat as fast as I can. This bike is in terrible shape. I let this guy know your bike needs a lot of work. This is how much your flat cost. Bye. And then <laughs> I, I look and I'm like, did anybody else hear that? Nobody else heard that? No, no, no one happened to notice that. Very selectively, we're unaware yet we're in this space together. Um, so that's also a strike for me, right? It's like, okay, so you guys aren't actually looking out for me. Like, like we should be looking out for each other. This is our, yeah. this is our home. This is our space. Like we're welcoming people into our space. We yeah. should all be looking out for each other. Um, You'd think. It's a cultural thing. 
You got it. It is. It's cultural differences, <laughs> and like that was actually cultural differences. I will chalk that up to like an experience that I feel like you and I probably have encountered so many times that we're just like, come on, bro. Like you really don't need to do this right now. But the fact that nobody else sees that is so, it's so frustrating. Yeah. And that is a microaggression, right? Like, like it's so hard to like, that's like an aggressive like, aggression. That feels like an aggressive <laughs> aggression. But for them, like for white people that I think yeah. would qualify as a microaggression, because I think, because of the fact that it could go over everyone else's head, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though it's so like, like why didn't he just take a shank and like stick it in your rib? Like, yeah. what is going on? Yeah. Uh, and and I'll admit, I have a big ego. I'm an Aries, so my ego is very big. So of course I'm like, well, I'm not an equal opportunity. I fucking worked hard for this job. I've been is, is that an Aries ass. characteristic? That explains yeah, a lot Aries about myself, pretty, I guess. I think there's there's a lot of ego work for Aries, from what I understand. Okay, noted, noted. Are you an are you also an Aries? Uh, I sure am. <laughs> oh, <laughs> when's your birthday? Uh, April second. <gasps> April seventh. Oh, so close. Yeah. yeah. How, <laughs> how was your COVID birthday? Did you? Um, it, I, I downloaded Zoom that day ah. so, I could, <laughs> so I could see someone other than the people in my house. So yeah, that that's how. Yeah. Sweet. It was, yeah, that was towards the beginning of quarantine still. Mm-hmm. Like a couple, couple weeks in. Yeah. It was still kind of cute. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I felt like uh, everything in that early stage was like really giving Aries a hard time. Like all the Aries memes about our birthdays were giving us a hard time. Like I definitely was trying to plan a nice party. And then when I realized that there was not going to be any party, I was like, well, I guess I'm going to cook myself some burgers and hang out with myself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty um, much. Not a whole lot we could do. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so, you know, I'm, I've been in this space, like, wanting to prove to people that I'm not an equal opportunity hire, right? Like, I got hired on but my own merit. I, I worked hard. I, yeah, you're right. I shouldn't You shouldn't have to. have to prove. You don't have to prove yourself. Like, it's so frustrating. Thank you for reminding <sighs> me of that. Because I will say my, my whole bike industry career has felt like a, a, a much a very humbling experience of me trying to prove myself, but realizing I don't have to, I can't. Well, here's There's- the thing. Here's the thing with proving yourself. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you successfully prove yourself or not, because someone else is going to walk in that store and have the same friggin' thoughts that that person had. And you're back to square one. So what are you going to do? Prove prove yourself to every single doubtful human? Like, it's not possible. Yep. It's, it's not. just not possible. No, you're you right. Can't, you can't do it. Yep. So, I don't know. It's so, it's like we're constantly, like, building ourselves up for ourselves only to be breaking down, like, broken down again. And it's just mm-hmm. like, guys, can we, can we not? Can we just not do this? Because I'm tired. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. <laughs> like, I know and, you, you know, just got here. Even but... if I'm not. <laughs> yeah. And and even though I'm not like, like mentally being like, oh, I've got to prove myself, you know, you're still doing that, like going above and beyond, right? Doing 155% when everybody else is putting in 70, you know? Right. Um, 
I think in a lot of ways, the leadership that I brought to Trek Chelsea was leadership that wouldn't have existed had I not been there, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, the number of times that I went to other people to discuss the things that I felt like we needed to have in the store, uh, we often got met with very reactionary stuff like, oh, here's a number you can call if you think you've been harassed at work. My thing is like, when are they going to teach us what harassment is? Like, when are we going to talk about and agree on what that is? Otherwise, I'm just going to make phone calls every day about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Um, so you've been in this space and now like Trek has quite a a fire being lit under them at the moment um, for having known contracts selling bikes to police officers. How mm-hmm. how has it been as a black woman navigating that space, like working for Trek and like I don't know I like I I don't even know I don't know do you yeah. what what do you how do you <laughs> how do so, you <laughs> yeah so yeah <laughs> so I mean I you know I pray a lot <laughs> um, I do a lot of good things for myself um, but. Basically now, since COVID hit, I, I made a very specific decision for myself as a black woman. I was like, I'm not going to go work in Chelsea at a bike shop that hasn't fully figured out how they're going to respond to COVID. Um, as they figure it out, you know, they're still letting people into the store, uh, navigating that on the early end. Um, so I took on a role working from home for Trek. So I'm now a customer care representative. So I like answer phones. Uh, chat with you on the trek.com chat. So if anybody ever gets on that and sees Lydia M, that's me, you'll be talking to me. Um, And it's, it's really difficult. You know, a group of us here in New York, a group of shop workers for Trek wrote a letter to Trek making some demands, expressing our concerns about the fact that Trek is still selling bikes to police officers. And um, at the time that we wrote this letter was when we were going through that, uh, uh, two weeks post Memorial Day um, phase of helicopters, 24 hours a day over Brooklyn, of police forces uh, just, you know, being as violent as they could to protesters. I don't even want to call them peaceful protesters because it doesn't matter if they're peaceful or not. It's their they right. Be getting beat over the head. That's, no, that's, no. Like, I was told that we were allowed to protest in this country, but. For some reason. Exactly. Um, exactly. And like, you know, having my own friends be at protests and tell me about getting pepper sprayed or, you know, having these really scary scenarios come up that all of us working in the shops, the bike workers working, you know, we're like, there's a, they're giving us a curfew in this city and police are literally like fighting people of, about that curfew. Like we don't feel safe. So we sent a letter to the leadership at Trek, um, never got any response. Oh. Uh-huh. I've I've actually sent two of my own personal letters um, to the leadership at Trek. Uh, the first one, the response was, um, sorry, Lydia, you can't keep your insurance while you stay in this part-time role as a customer care representative. Um, you'll just have to accept that. And, oh, that's so generous of them. Yeah. They keep, uh, and I've had several people be like, man, we're so glad that we could at least find that role for you so you didn't have to go into your shop to work. And it's like, okay. But 
when John Burke starts talking about the equality gap and, you know, writing his <laughs> presidential campaign letter. I don't think we have time for that conversation. <laughs> it's just, it for me, you're right, we don't. But for me, for, for me it's the book. The book I'm, is like the line. <laughs> I get, I get, I yeah. get heated when I think about the book. <laughs> mm-hmm. Me too. Have you read it? Should I? No, I mean, he basically, like, all of the stuff that he's putting out now that you see is, like, him trying to put out parts of his book, um, the presidential playbook, whatever. Um, He solved. He he knows how to fix it, right? He knows how to fix America. Right. But my question is, what we always say, what we always think about is, while you're thinking about how to fix America, what are you doing within your own organization and industry? How do you start locally and really focus there and then spread out? Um, and that and that really is the part that perturbs me. Part-time workers for Trek do not get insurance. They do not get benefits. People who are working four days a week, less than 40 hours a week, are not getting benefits. That's an equality gap, you know? Um, an employee working in Brooklyn for Trek corporate uh, stores does not have the same opportunity to get tuition reimbursement as employees working in Waterloo. That's an equality gap. That's an issue. Um, so yeah, for me, it's been really, it's been really hard. I, I think some days I wake up and I feel like I love the bike industry. I love bikes. I'm so excited. I want to talk to people about bikes. And then, you know, I get some, I think just the other day I had a guy in Canada who really wanted to talk to me about politics. And I set the boundary at the beginning and said, sir, I really don't think we should have this conversation. Let's like focus. Wait, on- was this, did he call into Trek? Oh yeah. And he wanted to talk about politics? Aren't you customer service rep? Like how did uh, we get there? Dude, the things I have to talk about with people. <laughs> I, am, I'm, I mean, like I don't get paid enough. I'm a bicycle therapist if I'm going to be real with you. Like. <laughs> talking people through why they shouldn't get the bike that they want because their budget isn't there yet or helping someone understand why it might be better for them to have this bike. And I'm like, where are your friends? Like, don't you have somebody that knows you more deeply who can talk to you about what's right for you? I mean, I can tell you what comes on the bike. I can tell you how much it costs, but I don't know you to know that this is the perfect bike for you. Um, I can only tell you based on what you've told me. So, you know, let's go from there. Yeah. Lots of lonely men on the phone. I've had a few like 45 minute conversations that were longer than they needed to be. I just sat and listened. Um, So it's strange. You know, I have no idea. My contract in this role is up August 28th. I have asked and reached out and said we need a diversity and inclusion organization within Trek that there should be people hired from every sector within the organization that is a person of color or from some community other than white and male um, so that we can all be talking about what are the things that this organization can do that's better for the thousand jobs for black people John Burke plans to have over the next 10 years. Like, I don't know. We can't just and be- which jobs which I, I mean, I, I have, I've kind of like- shut out, shut myself out from that conversation for a little bit because it was too much. But does, was it, was it just like a thousand jobs for blacks or was it like a specified, like diverse array of what kinds of jobs it would be? Are we going to get more like custodial positions or (laughs) I feel like my frustration with the industry is that they, they deliberately use vague descriptors for things. So they're not to, 
it, so no one can hold them accountable for having said anything real. And it's like, guys, you've, you're, so you're basically telling us you're not going to do anything differently than you're already doing. Yeah, that's it. And, and honestly, my issue is that the leaders of this industry aren't making space to listen. They're all just talking a lot. You know, John Burke is just saying a lot of what he thinks is going to be the answer. But my question is like, who is the black person in that boardroom, in that discussion with you that will say to you, hey, John, maybe making this statement right now isn't the right idea. Maybe this is a good time for Trek as an organization to be quiet and to open up the doors to listen to their employees. Because Trek employees are speaking up. People are talking to them, but there hasn't been a public forum. Like I go to BMCC, BMCC has had several open forum conversations that they have invited the entire student body to, right? Thousands and thousands of New Yorkers from all across the boroughs go to BMCC, go to CUNY. I mean, probably millions. I have no idea what the student population is for CUNY as a whole, but they've been able to have entire conversations with the student body to understand what they need. How because is it they that want this- to. Right. Yeah, that's true. And, and if, you know- if, if they have these conversations, then they'll know more than they know and they don't want to know because then they, I mean, they still don't have to do anything with that information, but- they can't say they didn't know. And right mm. now, like, like I think a lot of this industry is built on that ignorance, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's built on not knowing what sexual harassment is or not knowing about racial divides because they never have to. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have to know, then you don't have to fix it. You don't have to do anything about it. And right. John Burke doesn't, it doesn't appear that he wants to know because he already thinks he does. He knows how to fix it. He mm -hmm. knows that all of the problems that we have with the lack of diversity in the cycling industry are directly related to income inequality mm -hmm. and that's just not true and it's like my like the way like i don't know i've been doing this work for a couple of years and the the best summary that i can think of is that the bike industry looks at us and they say like oh we're not terrible people we're not horrible to them they're just poor right they just mm -hmm. they just need money that's the difference mm -hmm. and I mean, some people need money. A lot of people need money, but you're also terrible, you know? Yeah. Like, I mean, I need money. <laughs> I need money. But also, yeah, like, like, we like, can, we should fix both. We yeah. Should fix, there's more than one thing that needs to be fixed. Yeah. It's the system. And, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's the, the ignorance. Um, yeah. The ignorance is bliss, I think, too, right? Like, and it's on purpose, it's willful. Mm hmm. And, and once, you know, I mean, at this point, like Trek, John Burke, Trek can't say that they don't know that police officers are using their bikes as weapons. Right. They it's know. been tagged all over Twitter. We see it, you know, and and the the fact that like like I really appreciated, even though I was like, they're not saying they're not going to do it. But I appreciated that Fuji just said, we're going to we're going to pause. Um, we're going to take a take a pause on our police bikes and think about this. And for me, that is a, a piece that's very that I can respect a lot. When someone says, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause for a minute and really think about this," now whether or not they're actually thinking, whether or not they're listening or talking to marginalized folks in the bike industry, I don't know because I don't work for Fuji. I'm not there. But just the willingness to say, "I'm gonna take a step back and look at this program," because 
like all I keep thinking is why don't we have a bicycle program for our health workers? Mm. Right. Why don't we have a bicycle program for all of these food delivery workers? I'm telling you, I work on some terrible food, food delivery truck bikes. They run those bikes to the ground. They exactly. were just trying to make money. And we, and we often were talking in our shop, how do we create a program to help these guys keep their bikes working? Right. What do we do I mean, to make they just got the right to use some of the bikes that they're choosing to use? Like <laughs> just existing is already hard enough. Like yeah. special programs to improve quality of life is not even on the table yet, you know? Um, and the thing, the, the fact that they only got approval for those e-bike delivery bikes because it was a necessity for the city during this pandemic tells you everything you need to know. It's like, yeah. oh, we need this now as a population. So we'll let you exist now. Yeah. But before you were a nuisance, so you needed to go. It's just like, no. they were yeah. still serving the community mm -hmm. and doing the job that other people did not want to do. And yep. you're penalizing them for it and taking away their livelihood. And like, but now that you need them, yeah, let's pass that on through. It's not like someone's been working on this for years and trying to make this happen. <sighs> yeah. No, the, the, the bike industry is complicit in the systems and structures that, that marginalize sure us. And it sure is. As much as I believe in it, you know, I, I believe that the bike can be a tool for change. Um, it can be a tool for amazing personal community, global change. It's not being used that way right now. And that probably is what makes me the most sad. Mm -hmm. um, but also drives me. Uh, so mm -hmm. you know. there's so much potential. Yeah. We could just like get over protecting the systems that don't work and start focusing on building systems that do. Um, Cool. So I have taken up quite a bit of your time here today. Okay. <laughs> um, I guess I have one, uh, well, two other questions. Um, you just said a lot of things that none of them seem to be untrue, but that could be very uh, unfavorable for your employer. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel any like fear for like, retaliation or like how do you feel um, about yeah okay. sorry you froze a little bit at the end there I heard do you have any fear for retaliation yeah that was that was the question yeah you know I I mean I fear that because it, I feel like I've already been being pushed out right I made my case for why I felt like I needed to stay from home uh, rather than going into my shop to work during the thick of COVID-19 taking over New York City. Um, I lost my benefits because of that. Now I'm working a part-time contracted position that ends on August 28th. And nothing that I've said here is anything I haven't shared with my leadership already. Okay. So yeah, I, I do feel like this could be a reason for them not to make any offers around a diversity and inclusion team or leader or something, you know, like, I guess I'm here saying to Trek, like, this is me saying one more time to you guys, like, I'm open to supporting and helping this organization become the actual diverse and inclusive space that it wants to say it is. Mm. Um, Keywords. But that's a job. That's a job. It is a job. And I need to get paid for that job. And, uh, you know, 
And right now, because it's such a new idea, it's a job that I should get to have a lot of freedom in figuring out how it works. Um, so yeah, you know, but at the same time, I'm like figuring out my own thing. Different gear is taken off. We're, we're working on trying to find our own space so that we can be our own bike shop that serves the community of people that love us, that we love, that we want to support. How can people support that? Um, so you guys, if you want to get your bike worked on uh, by me, I'm right now working on bikes on my stoop. So you can email Different Gear. It's uh, differentgearbk at oh, gmail.com. Sorry. Differentgearbk at gmail.com. Uh, you can reach us out to us there. Okay. And if you just want to say, hey, what's up? We're on Instagram, Different Gear BK again. Uh, and we're just, you know, really trying to figure out how we can best serve uh, the cyclists in Brooklyn, in Brownsville, in Crown Heights, in Bed-Stuy, and all these, you know, central Brooklyn neighborhoods that don't have the community support from a bike shop, basically. Uh, I think a lot of us go through this industry and we kind of get spit out at after a certain point. And then you realize you got to create your own space. Like that's the solution. It's like, we can't keep trying to count on white folks to make the spaces better because they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, some of them want to, sure, but not enough. And after a while you just get tired. And so you're like, I'll just make my own space. So make your own space. I think that's fantastic. And I'm happy to support however I can. Um, And I'll put all the things that you just said in the description so people can have access to the, the information on how to support you as well. One last thing before you go, if you could tell anybody um, or other black women that can relate to you in whatever way, um, one thing, what would that thing be? You're not alone. Even if you feel like the space you're in, you're the only one, uh, you're, you're trying to figure it out, nobody else cares about bikes like you, whatever it is, like you're not alone. There will be people in your corner. Um, and, you know, take rest. <laughs> take your breaks when you need to. Amen. <laughs> That's true. That's so true. All right. Thanks so much, Lydia, for all of your time. I think this is one of the longer podcasts that we've done, Um, but it's a good one. And I appreciate you uh, sharing all of that with us. And uh, (laughs) yeah, that's it. Bicycle, 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 bicycle race. Thank you for listening to this episode of Quick Brown Foxes. Endless thank yous to Lydia for sharing their experience. If you would like to learn more about Different Gear, you can find them on Instagram at differentgearbk, D-I-F-F-E-R-E-N-T-G-E-A-R-B-K. You can also support Different Gear financially by donating to at LydiaMazing on Venmo, L-Y-D-I-A-M-A-Z-I-N-G. I would also like to thank my sponsors and partners, Live Cycling, SRAM, Cliff Bar, Diaspora Kitchen in Atlanta, Carmichael Training System, Spot Accident Insurance, Bike Flights, and Kika Stretch Studios in Atlanta. I would also like to thank my patrons. You make productions like this possible and allow me to pay people for their time and their work. 
If you would like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com slash aquickbrownfox. Thank you to new patrons, Pact, Megan McClure, Ralph Perry, Cassandra Radcliffe, Sarah Waxman, Holly Borowski, Nicholas Forden, Jess Perella, Kelly Beck, Mark Hunter, Lauren Schindel, Stay Kind, David, Sammy, and Esther Lexgen. Until next time, bye.